For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller-Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Good evening. Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Montreal's Josh Miller. Good evening, sir. Hello, Dan. And this evening, we're going to talk to lawyers. I love talking to lawyers. They're always so Do you really? I do. I do. Tonight will be more fun than maybe usual when you talk to them. Uh, Stephen Sullivan will be here from De Grand Prix Chait. And later in the program, Patrick Sullivan, trustee at FL, is going to talk about a really interesting issue, uh, how to deal with bankers as an entrepreneur and uh, some of the uh, some some advice there. Uh, so that'll be interesting, I coming up later in the program. Uh, but first, as usual, Josh, news and notes. And one story that I wanted to get to um, from last week, which was uh, kind of interesting, uh, being a party boss, uh, having a keg in the office, having beers, wine, and everything. Is this something that uh, that we can still do in 2019? Or has the, have the fun police sort of sucked all of that out of the workplace? Uh, there's no question. It depends on your culture. It depends on what's there. But the the whole point is, and we and you know we won't ask the lawyer in the room later what the, what the obligations and the liabilities are. We're going to leave that out. We're talking about culture and human resource. And really, it's not so much about the keg itself. It's what culture do you bring? It's not about having the keg, but are you hiring the people that will enjoy being around the keg? Uh, and I and I think that's where the differentiator lies. You can't. It's it's not about the beer, the alcohol, the the snacks, and all that. It's are you hiring? Are you bringing on HR people that do have their interpersonal skills that do like to share and, and hang out and 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 live the culture that you're trying to create that do get along and because you know the, the the team that works better together definitely stays longer together. They collaborate better together. So it's not about the keg in and of itself, although that can be a lot of fun. Uh, it's uh, it's about really the right people that you're hiring. That all being said, of course, you know, you got to be a responsible employer and a responsible entrepreneur and make sure that uh, nobody endangers their lives. Of course, good advice. Uh, from Financial Post, one company's video marketing strategy that helped rack up $6 million in sales. Very interesting. I mean, I'm a big believer in, in content marketing, but uh, uh, it's rare you put out a couple of videos that, that make you millions. Well, that's just it. And, and I think it really revolves around the today... Static is great, but video is better. You know, when you're sitting and you're, whether you're lying in bed or whatever, and you have your, your Facebook on or your LinkedIn or whatever, and you kind of have the, the movement that catches the eye, mm -hmm. that's really good. So for them, they really wanted to capture the, the, the video aspect of it. But even more importantly than that, they didn't get it right the first time around. And it was about, you know, targeting your audience, like knowing where you want to go. And Dan, I know you have your comments about, you know, the, the different platforms that are out there for social media. Uh, that you know, if we had fifty-five minutes, you could rant all you want, <laughs> and how and how you you know your love of Facebook, no no doubt. Uh, but the the reality is, video definitely catches an eye. But there's a couple of things in there that are that are really important if you're going to use video. Don't be too long. If you're too yep. long, I mean, and, and Dan, I'm you know you know this better than anybody else. Too long, you're going to lose people's interest. What I find is, and when when I'm in a room with other people, or I'm lying in bed and I'm watching my phone, I don't have the sound on. Uh, so it's easier to read. So you know what? Have your captions. Have your have your written word with the video. Uh, and Dan, you know you're, you've been in this business for a while. What do you think is you know for entrepreneurs and video? What would be the first thoughts that come to your mind? It really depends on the business. For many, it's not necessarily something you have to invest in. If you're in a very visual kind of business, fashion, uh, cars, obviously it's it's a natural. 
give people what they want. You know, if, you, if you're in the writing business and if you're a lawyer, for example, if you're trying to make arguments to society, well, then write a lot. If you're in radio, do a podcast. You have to sort of, I guess, evaluate which media platforms uh, your customers will most likely be engaged in. And if it's a visual business, yeah, video is, is essential, of course. But even if you're selling a product or a service and you want to get it out there, you know, Yes, you can be in a retail store, but online, definitely you could reach more people. I would say just, you know, just keep it short because not everybody has the attention span today that they, that they used to have. And, uh, and, and I think also talking about the benefits of it, just get right to the point. Mm-hmm. How can this product or service help you? How will you be better off? Right. And, and if you can say it in a GIF... Uh, or a photograph, do it in that. You don't necessarily have to spend it on video. You can tell that story visually in, in many other ways, but as you mentioned, yeah, the challenge is a bit steeper if you are not uh, have an interesting video that goes along with it. Um, also from Financial Post, how do you know if your unique product is priced perfectly? The magic formula. This is, and I got to tell you, the, the article says magic formula. I'm still trying to figure out. There's no such thing as a magic formula. I think what the, the, the article that I, that, I, that I read from the Financial Post is really about doing proper research. It's really about getting as much information as you can from the competition, from the markets out there, even even different parts of the world to see what other people are doing because your own backyard might not be doing it. But if you go stretch beyond, then you might be able to find it, find a little, a lot more information about it. I think the other thing is you can always test it. You can always test your pricing. Just don't test it with the big boys that, you know, if it goes sour, then that could really hurt you. Do it on smaller groups, smaller companies, smaller consumer groups, and uh, and test it. But really, research and test, if, the, if you call that the magic formula, then so be it. Some of the best business articles I read are on uh, hbr.org, the Harvard Business Review. This one, uh, five lessons I learned from selling my startup. And this was, uh, this is great because this is, while it's selling your startup, it's really about selling any business. And I'll, I'll, I'll run through the five of them and they're all hugely, hugely important and, and almost obvious, but, and I'm going to say this, notwithstanding the, 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 the lawyer that will be in the room, don't let the bankers, the lawyers and other advisors run the show. Yes. Use them for their knowledge, for their professionalism, for their guidance. But if you let them run the show, it could potentially derail. So this is not a blanket statement that all professionals are bad, uh, you know, shooting my own self in the foot, uh, but really understand it. I would say another thing is everybody says, great, NDA is going to protect you to the nth degree. That's great, but in a practical world, NDAs only take you so far. Understand that there's limitations on on non-disclosure agreements. You know, there's always some information that could get out there. Uh, you just don't have full control over it. And there are thieves. <laughs> there are people on and the there, internet. And there are thieves out there. Yeah. No, no question. Uh, I would say the, the, the next two um, are, for me, super important, especially in the long term. One is if you're going to reach out with potential buyers, get to know them, spend some time with them. Don't just email them. Don't just talk on the phone. And if you've identified them a little bit earlier and they're strategic partners and you can do business with them, get to know them a little bit first before you really get into bed and selling your company. That time is absolutely very well spent. And the last comment I'll make on this article is and, and we see this all the time, and I'm sure Stephen has seen it as well. Entrepreneurs, they, they really want to run. They want to sprint. They want to get to that finish line. But selling your company, an M&A process, is not a sprint. It is a marathon. If it's a sprint, that's great. You're very fortunate, but you might have missed something. So take your time to deal with the right aspects because everybody wants it to succeed. 
I can't believe we're here already, but we're already looking on uh, trends in 2020 and this from entrepreneur.com, five business trends to look out for next year. And you know, you can you can talk about all these, you know, there's so many so nobody has nobody has a crystal ball and there's so many trends, um but I, I there's one that keeps, you know, there's a couple that keep coming out. One is green, you know, corporate responsibility and staying green and all that, find any product, any service uh and and amplify its greenness, if you will. And you, you know, you'll definitely, you'll hit a lot of things. And of course, on the computer side, between artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, e-commerce, uh, all the online softwares, platforms, programs that you can, that you can apply to your product, your service, uh, or whatever, however you can ease a consumer's life. That's uh, that's really out there. And of course, AI. They mentioned that in the article too. Everything is AI these days uh, when it comes to algorithms. So that's wait till we run the show with AI, Dan. Oh, that's that would be uh, well, maybe pretty optimal. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Just need batteries. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult FL Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL Montreal's Josh Miller with you for today's Entrepreneur. And this evening, we welcome Stephen Solomon to the program, Maître Solomon, from the law firm de Grand Prix Chait. Welcome. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, Josh. Pleasure to be here. Do you like being called Maître? I, uh, I do, actually. Excellent. I kind of do. We don't say it enough in English, but I mean, I'd feel nice if someone called me Maître. I thought it was master in English. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> Yeah, as uh, there, there are several masters you can be. We'll just leave it at Matt. <laughs> so, as as we begin the, the show each uh, each time with our guest, uh, just so that the listener truly understands, um, the easiest question of the night, softball here comes, Stephen. What is the Grand Prix Chait? The Grand Prix Chait is a uh, mid-sized regional law firm, uh, meaning we are about sixty-five lawyers. Regional meaning we have uh, offices only in Montreal. Um, De Grand Prix Chait's been around for over 90 years. We celebrated our 90th anniversary last year, so sort of an institution here in Montreal. And we specialize in uh, many legal areas, varying, uh, ranging from real estate, for which we're very well known, tax, and many, many different kinds of litigation. Now, there's, but there are some areas you don't cover, you know, and whatever they are, they're, they're probably very few. Is that on purpose? Uh, good question. I mean, listen, we do not do any criminal law. Uh, you know, criminal lawyers tend to work in boutique firms that only do criminal law, probably because of reputational risks that are associated with defending uh, certain types of criminals. Um, we also don't do family law. Uh, I don't think that's on purpose. I think that if we had, uh, you know, great family lawyers who wanted to work with us, uh, I'm sure we'd, uh, we'd welcome them into the fold. But, uh, you know, other than that, we are pretty much a, a full service firm. Now, when did you start at the Grand Prix? I started at the Grand Prix a little bit over eight years ago, and uh, it's been a, a blissful relationship ever since. I, I'm, I'm sure it has been. I'm sure it has, you know, a, a lot of experiences. Now, when you first started out, because you're, you're a partner there today. Uh, you, I am. You, thank you. Uh, when, when you first started out before partner, uh, how was that experience? Like, you know, living, living as a, an associate or, you know, a, a worker bee, uh, you know, I know today, you know, we, we live in a professional world as well and taking young professionals under your wing and mentoring, like it's, it's a, it's a major major aspect, certainly in the longevity of, of a firm. Uh, how was your experience there? You know, uh, firstly, I, I remember being 
and feeling very intimidated when I first started at the Grand Prix Chate. You know, I, I had started in a boutique firm that had maybe 12, 13 lawyers. And all of a sudden, I was in this big box in a much bigger building on a really high floor with a crazy view, you know, 70, 75 lawyers, maybe 130 employees. And, you know, it's, you know, you're a young professional trying to find your own space and your own place, trying to figure out who you are as a professional, what you want to be. So there's a lot of things that are happening and that are kind of, you know, swirling around in your head. Um, so, you know, it took, a, it took some time just for me to, you know, figure out what it was all about and, you know, get, get acclimatized, get acclimated to, to that environment. Now, from uh, keeping in mind, and we're, we're talking a little human resources because there's really, it's, it's, you know, talent war is there. You're, you're trying to find, there's people that go from firm to firm. It's sometimes, you know, there, and there's, there's a pool of people out there that get taken. They're not, how do you guys deal with, with the human resource aspect of it? Listen, you know, it's, it's important to, uh, you know, for a firm like ours, you know, to have an identity, to have a culture and to have values that, you know, make the work environment a place that people want to be. And, uh, also, you know, to, to have a team that people, you know, want to play on, want to be a part of. So that's, uh, that's a major challenge and, uh, it's something that most firms probably don't focus on enough and something we always strive to improve on. When you made partner, did your brain switch a little bit from associate to entrepreneur? Did you started thinking more entrepreneurially? You know what? Uh, I would say no. I would say that that transition, which definitely was a, a transition that did occur, probably occurred a couple years earlier. And that's maybe what made me uh, appealing as a, as a candidate for partnership. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a great question because I remember... The first few years at the Grand Prix Eight was all about, you know, doing the work and, you know, making sure my boss was happy and, you know, answering all the calls and, you know, being there for the clients and winning cases. And then eventually, you know, when, when you know, you start to have a, a little bit more composure and, and poise in the office, a little bit more time to think, you're, you're, you're maturing and you're growing and you're starting to meet people and then you're coming up with your own ideas and you're making your own contacts. And I remember going through that and, and really loving that and wanting to do more of it. And that's sort of where, you know, my entrepreneurial game started, you know, coming out. But then it leads to the next natural best question. So what does it take to become a partner at the Grand Prix Chate? Well, to become a partner at the Grand Prix Chate, there are, there are definitely these objective guidelines that that we set out you know let's call them the numbers you know you need to objectively perform in certain different areas to a certain level meaning uh like number of hours number of billables uh, exactly, amount of dollars you know, that you can bring in business development some of those exactly all of those and um you know at the same time you know it's 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 a long game so you know you may have someone who you know, uh, satisfies, you know, two out of the three or three out of the four criterias, and they're not uh, on paper uh, a perfect candidate, but they have the right personality and the right character and they embody the right values and you know they're going to get there probably sooner than later. And then it becomes a question of, well, are we going to name this guy a partner or this this lady a partner or, or are we going to risk maybe losing them? So there's also that that factors in quite a bit. The branded law firm is pretty hot right now. Is that something that you've ever discussed or is it uh, de Grand Prechet always? Uh, it's definitely been discussed, but uh, the Grand Prix Chate is uh, is who we are. It's 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 how we're known, and it's also a testament to our history. You know, uh, we're the result of, of a merge uh, about 20 years ago uh, between the Grand Prix and Chate, two two distinct firms. And uh, you know, the Grand Prix and Chate also really well represent, you know, our demographic and our composition. 
and uh, we really are uh, a blend of you know French and English lawyers, and um, you know so we we really have decided to to hold on to that and really embodies who we are. Now, when you're when you're becoming a partner, just to come to that. Over the years, have you seen a change of mentality? Like you know, you were talking about it's pretty evened out if somebody does this or maybe a little bit weaker than that, but stronger there. It's all taken into account. Has that changed over the years? Um, you know, I think probably partnerships are a little bit more accessible now than they were before. It's it's not so much, uh, you know, uh, wait your turn and, and when you're ready, we'll let you know. It's more of, you know, like the young guy, you know, the younger lawyers are knocking on the door and when they come and knock in, you better answer because it's easy for, for lawyers, you know, to get employed somewhere else. And, you know, third, fourth, fifth and sixth year lawyers are hot commodities on the market. So, you know, you got to lock down your young talent when you can. Proactive versus reactive. Yeah. Getting an inside look at the business of law firms this evening with Stephen Solomon of De Grand Prix Chate. More with him. And a little later in the program, we'll talk about uh, maintaining a solid relationship with your banker. That's all on the way. Today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller-Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar and FL Montreal's Josh Miller with you. And our guest this evening is Stephen Solomon, lawyer at uh, the firm De Grand Prix Chait. And we'll talk a bit about marketing in a second, Josh. Uh, but first, some HR challenges. Yeah, and-, and, and I think we, you know, we, I wasn't quite finished. You know, we were having a great conversation about uh, becoming a partner, hmm. uh, you know, and, and the partnership. And, there, you know, I definitely have a few questions surrounding it. But the first, and, and I know when I became a partner at the firm, you got to kick in some capital. You got to kick in some money. So, um, I'm interested to hear what do you do at De Grand Prix Chate? Is what do you do for partner buy-in? So, you know, De Grand Prix Chate is uh, has a very unique approach uh, to to the partner buy-in, quote unquote. We don't buy in. Um, no cash. No cash. Which soul, soul only. That's it. Blood <laughs> and sweat. Um, but you know, I remember when I became a partner, I was uh, 32, 33 years old and it would have been a very big deal for me to have to kick in. I don't even know how much or to have to borrow that amount or, you know, and, and have that, uh, you know, on my balance sheet or, or just, uh, on my mind. And, uh, it was a great, uh, thing for me to not have to do that. And what we do at the Grand Prix Chait is we basically operate with, uh, with a line of credit. So the bank lends us a whole bunch of money that we need to operate our law firm and they have, uh, you know, a lien on like receivables and, and other things to secure, you know, that line of credit. Um, and, you know, that allows, you know, for us partners to hold on to all our own money and, and do with it as we please. But you're on the hook because you sign, you know, if you're guaranteed, you, you sign for it. That's it. So every partner has to co-sign with the rest of the partnership to the bank to help secure that line of credit. So if ever we aren't able to pay our line of credit, they can, you know, they can come after me personally for a certain amount. I'd much rather sign a piece of paper than have to sign a big fat check. Question for either of you, actually. These days, are, are law firms the only professional services firms where you can make partner by just blood, sweat, and tears? Um, good question. I, I would imagine there's any any professional practice. I mean, certainly in others that, that we, when maybe it's a marketing agency, uh, that you can do. You don't necessarily have to buy in. I think it's it's how well is the firm capitalized. Uh, 
Hmm. You know, and and where do you want to grow? If you've been around 90 years, you might not need to have that quick injection of capital. You're an ongoing, you're a going concern. Yeah, uh, but you know, at the same time, you know, because we borrow those funds to operate our business, we carry an interest expense that maybe, uh, you know, other firms don't carry because they're capitalized with, with the partner buy-ins. That, that, so, you know, we carry an additional expense, but, you know, that's our choice and uh, and it works for us and so, we find, and, and and I think the market finds it very attractive as well those prospective lawyers who are considering us as a you know as a, as a as a new firm as a lateral move probably appreciate the fact that you don't have to write us a big check to come join us do you follow a typical partnership structure managing partner like how, how is it structured at the Grand Prix yeah we do we have uh, our managing partner Eric Lalan he's been our managing partner for eight to ten years and um, Eric Lalan, our managing partner, sits on a board of directors with five other partners. That board of directors manages the day-to-day. They make decisions that don't require, you know, the backing of the entire partnership. And then, of course, you know, we have our partner meetings, all the partners around the big table. And uh, there are, you know, pursuant to our partnership agreement, there are things that must be decided upon by the partnership. And when those things uh, come up, they get tabled at the partnership meeting and we all vote on it. And what about compensation? Is that everybody or that's a small group? Compensation is uh, is another committee. There's a compensation committee uh, of five equity partners and they distribute a portion of the profits on a discretionary basis, whereas the uh, majority of the profits are distributed in accordance with uh, mathematical formulas. Not every firm shares the compensation amongst partners do all your partners know how much the other partners we do that that that's also a a little bit unique uh fully transparent partnership we all know how much uh, the other one makes and you know i think that that transparency serves us well it's it's fascinating partnerships you know of course i i live in one so it's it's quite fascinating but let's kind of move on to something else marketing Yes, uh, you know the the firm. You know, people notwithstanding even around ninety years, there's still you know there's still movement in your client base. There's still new customers. It's Montreal and, and the region. What do you guys do for marketing that you think works well? Uh, you know, in a legal profession, uh, it seems to be important to um, be mentioned in certain reviews, like the Best Lawyers Review or like Chambers. And we boast a lot of our partners, uh, you know, among those ranks and, and, you know, big industry, they look to that, they want to know who's the best. And, um, you know, so that's important. We also- It takes time to write though. Is it tough to get people to write articles? Well, listen, writing articles and writing books uh, is not for everybody and it's not easy. And, you know, we've had our partners, you know, participate in that and, you know, we've had some success there, but it's, it's, it's really not for everyone. And it's a huge, huge undertaking. Lawyers, I find, and I do a lot of this nagging myself in my professional life, but lawyers are such strong writers. I really want to convince all of them to, to blog and to write on a regular basis. Do you have that? Do you, do you push some of your, your associates to, to do any forms of marketing, social media, anything like that? Uh, you know what? Not so much social media. I mean, listen, you know, we encourage our lawyers to be present on LinkedIn and, and to speak of, uh, you know, their various accomplishments, whether it's, you know, giving a conference or, or, or publishing something or even, a, you know, a big win in court. Um, but other than LinkedIn, you know, I don't know that there's uh, appropriate forums that are, you know, regularly used by, by the general public, you know, that would really, you know, bring back enough given the effort that that would have to be put in. Um, but, you know, social media, not so much. 
giving conferences uh, is a big deal because you, you get to really invite your own audience. You get to handpick that audience, make sure you have the right demographic in front of you. And, you know, for example, our construction law team has an annual conference. It's been doing it for years. It's a big event. It's known in the industry and uh, it's a big success. And it's, it's, it's part of how we communicate our expertise in that area. What about in a social aspect? Is that important too? I mean, staying close, uh, like from a marketing standpoint, just to keep those relationships. Well, absolutely. You know, the Grand Prix Chate, we have our huge annual uh, cocktail. It's called the La Soirée de Grand Prix Chate. And at this cocktail, we have, you know, maybe five, 600 invited guests, uh, traditionally clients. And uh, we bring all our clients to an amazing evening of great cocktails and drinks. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful occasion every year. And uh, we call out everybody to come have a good time on us. That's, that's sort of the social side of it. Do you outsource marketing or you have it in-house? We have our own marketing team. Uh, we have a marketing director. She's supported by uh, four or five other marketers on her team. And, uh, you know, they're handling all of our applications for chambers and best lawyers. They're handling all our promotional material. They're organizing our conferences, our, our soiree. You know, they're, they're an amazing team, a tremendous resource to have on site. Now we're, we're running out of time a little bit. So kind of the last question I have is, and we chatted about very quickly uh, at, the, at the top of the hour, technology. Yes. And artificial intelligence. Are you battling that? Are professionals in your firm battling that? You know, I don't even really know what that means uh, and how it would apply to law, but I know it's a big deal. I know the industry sees AI as a big deal as part of the future. Uh, I know that, you know, where our law firm is actually moving in a couple of weeks. We've made a decision uh, to move. We're, we're building brand new offices. They're going to be beautiful. But another big reason why we're moving is so that we can save a few bucks because we know and we anticipate that we're going to have to commit some of those extra dollars down the road to AI and not knowing exactly what that's going to look for. We've had to budget that into our fixed costs, our biggest costs, our rent. No question. And that was a partnership decision, right? It sure was. <laughs> <laughs> For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller-Landau, Chartered Professional Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL Montreal's Josh Miller with you for today's Entrepreneur. And we're chatting with Stephen Solomon, a lawyer at De Grand Prix Chate. We'll have his one piece of advice for today's Entrepreneur in a moment. But first, we welcome back Patrick Sullivan, FL trustee, uh, to talk about bankers. Welcome back, Patrick. Good evening, guys. So Always Josh, a pleasure uh, to be here. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for coming. So Josh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm learning here that you're actually supposed to befriend your banker. <laughs> you're, has to, you're supposed to socialize with these people? Well, you know, I, I guess the... the the thing is, how do you get the best out of the person that's going to help you finance and grow your company? Mm-hmm. You know, is it lying, cheating, and stealing? <laughs> Probably not. Although chances are an entrepreneur has done something like that along the way. White lies. Uh, is it being, you know, completely transparent and credibility? I mean, there's there's so many days, but having a relationship with a person that's lending you money and you want it to be for a long period of time, it's got to be things that you got to keep in mind. And then we're going to turn to Patrick because, you know, Patrick's been in this game and dealing with bankers for a few years. And uh, so we'll kind of ask you, Patrick, what kind of comes to mind when you have entrepreneurs and their relationship with their bankers? I think you you, you said the right word. Transparency is probably the key. Uh, unfortunately, entrepreneurs have a tendency when the business is going well not to necessarily talk to their banker. 
unless, you know, they're invited to this, you know, you won this award or, uh, you know, we're there and you need any more money. And, uh, you know, entrepreneurs have a tendency to say when things are not going as well, well, my banker gave me this huge umbrella when it was nice and sunny, but now that it's raining, he wants to pull it away from me, which leads to other problems. You know, the entrepreneurs have to understand what they sign, and it starts with their term sheet. It starts with what conditions did my banker give me in the first place to allow me to have this type of credit facility? And then if things go bad, obviously we're hiding. We're not, we necessarily know all of a sudden we do read the document and we're, we're going to start playing with numbers. And we see this often when we're acting on behalf of banks where they ask us to go into a company and kick the tires to find out what the heck's going on. You know, and then you realize that, oh, I needed more money or more availability on my borrowing base. So I started to play around with my accounts receivable buckets where if I'm not allowed to excess 90 days, well, you know what, I'll issue a credit note and I'll reissue an invoice in the current bucket, which makes that all of a sudden my unmarginable account becomes marginable again. Have bankers gotten smarter or have the systems in place the, gotten better? The, yes. The, the systems, before bankers used to, you know, they used to look at these numbers, uh, have a physical person putting them in, and now everything's computerized. And the entrepreneur has to upload information based on what he feels is his borrowing base. And the machine doesn't lie. What the machine will do is it will do comparisons. It will see that, oh, you did $200,000 in sales this month. Explain to us why you have $280,000 in your current bucket. You know, something doesn't tie in or all of a sudden the buckets don't match. So, Yes, now they carry normally 24 months worth of information and they can pretty well catch you. Uh, you know, so people are smart. Entrepreneurs are smart when they're, when they have problems, what they'll do is, oh yeah, but my banker allows me to give him that information 20 days after month end. So we're just going to stretch the month and, you know, we're going to bring it up to the 15th and billings and backdate everything. Until at some point, somebody asks to see, well, okay, uh, I agree, you, you know, uh, you, you're playing with the numbers, but eventually it'll catch up when those buckets start moving along. So, you know, transparency, obviously, when things are bad, talk to your banker, explain the reasons. There's always a reason, and most of the time, it's not a bad reason. In terms of the relationship between entrepreneur and bank manager, something I've heard a lot of in the last maybe 10, 15 years is uh, I don't have the same relationship with him any, him or her anymore. Uh, it's all an algorithm. We can't get anywhere on a personal level. Do you see more of that? Do you see those, those, that, those decisions being taken out of the hands of branch managers? Uh, you know, bankers are bankers. They, they, they're like any other professional. They move along. They get promoted. So yes, uh, in the last years, obviously, uh, the complaint that we sometimes hear from entrepreneurs is the fact that, well, my banker does not know my business, or I've changed bankers every 10, 12 months in the last three years. But that's, it's the profession that calls for this. People want to grow within the business, within the banking community as well. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not scared of picking up the phone and calling your banker and telling him, hey, you know what, come to my, come visit me. 
I'll show you around. I'll explain to you my business. They'll be more than happy to do so. But if you don't call them because you say to yourself, well, why would I talk to them? I don't have any problems. I'm making money. I'm having fun. Obviously, sometimes you hit a new banker that doesn't really understand your needs and, you know, things can happen. And, you know, as, as we were talking about it on another topic early in the program, uh, there's reputation and there's credibility. And it takes a long time to build your credibility, but you can lose it in an instant. Absolutely. Let me ask you this bluntly. Do you schmooze your bankers and do you have to schmooze your bankers? I don't think schmoozing is the right word. <laughs> I think you have to have the the ear of your banker. You have to be able to talk to your banker and express what you're living through within your business. I think that's the key. But schmoozing, not really. Bankers aren't, you know, maybe 40, 50 years ago, you would use that word. Not, not in this generation, not in these days and times. And the reality is, you know, maybe not everybody's like this, but if you are working on a project and you have things you're planning to do, you have your own network. Entrepreneurs have their own network. Bankers, financiers have their own network too. And Sometimes you should be surprised in how their network can assist. So that transparency and talking with them is uh, can be more helpful than you think. Patrick, thank you so much. I know it's you know dealing with dealing with bankers, and I think you know the the credit agreements and and the terms the term sheets. Uh, that's a great topic that we're going to save for another time. Thanks, guys. And as we approach the last moment uh, of each week, as as we do, uh, we're going to turn to our guest, Stephen Solomon of the Grand Prix Chait, and ask you, Stephen, what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur? My one piece of advice, Josh, is you don't necessarily have to seize the first opportunity or run with the first idea. Wait for the right opportunity. Wait for the right idea. And, you know, if you're out there wondering, well, how am I going to know if it's the right opportunity or the right idea? You'll know. Trust me, you'll know. The gut, the gut talking. Uh, thanks very much, Stephen. Uh, Dan, my quick takeaway is, is you know, you got to roll with the times and, and you got to be a little bit different. So when De Grand Prix doesn't necessarily ask for a partner buy-in, it's one way that differentiates themselves, differentiates themselves. So find a way to differentiate yourself regardless of the business. Stephen Solomon, lawyer at uh, De Grand Prix Chate and partner as well. Thank you so much for stopping by, Stephen. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Josh. Thanks to Patrick Sullivan as well. We'll see you soon, Patrick. And next week, back here Monday night at 7 for the Image Salon. Image Salon, company that's been around. They take pictures and they touch them up. Two people that own it started it five years ago. They're now 120 people plus. Whoa. All right. Today's Entrepreneur.org with over a decade worth of entrepreneur profiles. And we'll see you back here next week. Good night.